1 Kings chapter 4. We didn't quite get out of the fourth chapter together last time. Uh, Last time we went down as far as verse 25 in chapter 4 as we're looking here at really now sort of the uh, institution of King Solomon's reign and the peace and the prosperity, the incredible vastness of his wealth. Uh, that Solomon experienced under his reign, the great wisdom that God had given to him. And chapter 4 is kind of giving to us some summary details about the expansiveness of his administration, the 12 different governors that he put over the different territories that each would take a month and would bring provisions to supply for the operation of Solomon's quite expansive government. We saw his cabinet members described there. And verse 26 now, as we go on with some of these details of chapter 4, tells us that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 9, giving us some of the parallel account to these, tell us there that Solomon had, uh, it says, 4,000 stalls of horses. Some of your translations actually render the Hebrew uh, from verse 26 here. Some of the other translations render that 4,000. Others render it 40,000. Uh, it's possible there's just a discrepancy there in the translation from the Hebrew or a, a copyist error. At the end of the day, what the Bible is trying to indicate to us it's very minuscule it's not a doctrinal issue the bible is very clearly pointing out to us when you have 12,000 horsemen or 12,000 horse that are going to be ridden on and 4,000 or 40,000 stalls that's a lot of horses that's an expansive amount of horses that Solomon had underneath his supervision during the time of his reign and again the bigger thing we want to pay attention here to is Deuteronomy chapter 17 remember when God was giving the instructions regarding when Israel would have their kings in Deuteronomy 17 God gave explicit instruction that the kings of Israel were not to multiply three things gold and silver wives and horses that these were three things that the king of Israel was not to multiply and here's the thing Solomon was supposedly the wisest king that ever lived and he violated all three of those things in the word of God. He multiplied wives, we know that. Solomon's reign multiplied gold and silver more than any other king and we see here the multiplication of horses taking place well. Now remember, horses in that day were basically like today our tanks, our artillery. Uh, So it was really a way to invest in building up your military, your military strength. It was a show of power and God didn't want them to be reliant upon their own military strength. God wanted them reliant upon his power and his protection and that despite what their resources were the battle ultimately belonged to the Lord and they could be greatly outnumbered but if they depended upon God they would be successful in battle or they could have vast expansive military resources and personnel and greatly outnumber the enemies but if their confidence was in horses and their confidence was in the arm of their own flesh they would suffer great defeats and God would at times allow them 
to be defeated. So God wanted their confidence to be in them. And here's Solomon. We begin to see some of the weaknesses in Solomon, one of them being, though God gave him incredible wisdom to be able to reason things out, to think through things, Solomon's error was that he became a man at times who did not know how to regulate his desires. And the desires of his heart and the inclinations of what he longed after wives and expansive you know gold and silver and horses and all these kind of things you know Ecclesiastes as Solomon's writing out his life talking about how all eventually that proved to be vanity Solomon speaks and says there there was nothing that he deprived himself of the idea is that there was nothing that this man longed for ultimately he said all that was emptiness but the point here is that Solomon's problem was though he had an incredible mind and God gave him vast amounts of wisdom and understanding, he never utilized that wisdom in the way he should have first and foremost, which was to regulate his own desires and his own passions and his own longings. And listen, the heart will always make a convert of the mind. And if a person longs for something, whether it's power or some passion to be fulfilled or, you know, prosperity or position, it's amazing how the heart and the desire of the heart, if it's not regulated, will convince the mind, no matter how smart or wise a person may be, to do all kinds of foolish and destructive and disobedient things before God. And Solomon is a, a perfect case study of this. He multiplies wives, he multiplies gold and silver. Here we see him multiplying horses in direct defiance to what the word of God said a king was to do or not do. Verse 27 tells us in these governors, which we read of earlier in the chapter, each man in his month provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table and there was no lack in their supply they also brought barley and straw to the proper place for horses and steeds each man notice according to his charge now again this refers us back to what we saw in verse 7 where there it said that solomon had appointed 12 governors over all israel so solomon delegated responsibility to these 12 different governors who oversaw districts this isn't a reference to the same territories of the tribes of israel but just territories that solomon broke the area of his reign up under and delegated responsibility and verse 7 said that these 12 governors were responsible under their leadership to provide food for the king and all his household each one made provision for one month out of the year so each of the governors and their territories were responsible to basically pay their tax, if you would. One month out of the year, they were to supply all that was necessary for Solomon and his household. That is the entirety of his government structure. And we know government can be a very expensive thing to operate. We still seem to recognize that to this day. And, and Solomon had these 12 governors bringing supply. Verse 27 says that they faithfully provided for the king and all who came to him and there was no lack because each man was faithful to do what he was asked according to his charge so here again there's just this picture of there being adequate provision that they provided food for the king provided for what the king needed there was no lack there was adequate supply and the reason was because each man was faithful to his charge because each person was doing their share and taking their 
personal responsibility contributing doing their share there was no lack there was adequate provision for what the king needed and i look at that and i think what a beautiful picture as we in a sense have the privilege as servants of our king of jesus to be able to participate in the work of the lord and the rulership of jesus and what he's doing as our overseer and the Lord gives us a measure of responsibility in our spiritual lives. He gives us a charge, if you would, a, a sphere of influence, gifts to serve him and ways and opportunities to do what we can to provide for the work of our king. And as each one of us do our share, the, there, there's no lack. The body of Christ grows. In fact, the Bible even tells us in the book of Ephesians that the body grows and is built up, referring to the church, as each part does its share. And we each have a responsibility to recognize, Lord, what's my share? What's my part? How am I to contribute? What, what does that look like for me personally, according to your callings and your gifts and the opportunities that God gives to you when each person takes their charge and says, hey, this is my responsibility, my part in contributing to a process a beautiful thing happens. The work of our king is provided for and there's no lack. There's no struggle, if you would, but there's adequate supply for the work of the king to be done. And verse 29 says, and God gave, again, notice Solomon wisdom an exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart. The idea there is the ability to to grasp and to comprehend grand things above and beyond his, his human ability, largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. So again, we find this reference, we saw it in chapter 3, uh, exemplified where God gave to Solomon this incredible invitation when he revealed himself to Solomon. Remember, he said, ask, w what do you want me to give to you? And Solomon asked for wisdom. God, this responsibility you've given me to take care of your people, and, and God, I feel so inadequate. I feel like a child. I feel so you know, ill-equipped. I just don't know how to handle this level of responsibility. So he said, God, I need your wisdom to make decisions, to be discerning between what's good and evil and right and wrong. And God blessed and honored that prayer and gave to Solomon wisdom. We saw it exemplified there with the two women, remember, who came to him and had the dispute over the dead child. Each was claiming that the, the living child was theirs and Solomon used this wisdom that God gave him. But we find these continuous references here in chapter 3. Again, in chapter 4, the Bible indicates, and I can't stress enough, it says God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding and increase the capacity of his heart to discern things and be sensitive to the heart of God. Again, literally he asked for a hearing heart, an ability to hear God on a greater level. And this is what God gave to him. And how wonderful to realize, look, I understand there is value to just living life. And the longer you live life, you kind of naturally, as you live life and you experience some stuff, you gain wisdom. You accrue understanding. The Bible says the gray hair is a crown of knowledge and part of that is because the longer you live, you know, the, the more gray you get, usually the wiser you get. You wise up and you learn things. You know, sometimes what happens to happen with younger people, you're very idealistic, they have lots of ideas and sometimes you just kind of step back and think, yeah, you, 
You need a little wind to get knocked out of your sails. You need to experience a few things. And, and life just brings wisdom. That being said, that's one type of wisdom, but that's human wisdom. That's natural wisdom, common sense. It's a good thing. But the wonderful thing is there is supernatural wisdom. Wisdom that God can give. James 1 says that if we lack wisdom, we can ask of God and he gives it freely to us and generously. And he doesn't abrade us or mock us. Oh, I mean, can't you figure that out on your own? What do you need my help for? God's never going to do that. That we can go before God and say, God, I don't know how to handle this. I, I just, I see all the facts and I understand, but Lord, I don't even know where to begin and I don't know how to fix this or process this. Or, or, and, and the wonderful thing is God can give by his spirit supernatural wisdom divine insight and supernatural understanding beyond your human ability and my ability to be able to resolve issues and work through things. He can give a word of wisdom, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And here, I love to read verse 29. Again, this wasn't Solomon's wisdom. Remember, at this point, Solomon, as we've said many times, is a young man. At this point, he can't be beyond his mid-20s at this point. So this great wisdom is not coming from his age. It's a wisdom that comes from God as the Spirit of the Lord is imparting this into him, giving him exceedingly great understanding. And God's not a God of partiality. The Lord gives wisdom, the Bible says, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So ask of God, do you need wisdom? The same offers available to you and God can give the same for your life and whatever it is you need to process and work your way through. Verse 30 says, Thus Solomon's wisdom, notice because it was from God, excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. Again, these were areas, that those from the East, the Orient, those from that were in Egypt. These were where you know, it was known in that day. These were the people who were the great scholars those who were the philosophical minds, the men of the East, of the Orient. The, the, you know, in, we get to the New Testament, we read of the wise men, remember, who came from the East. These are people who were known to be brilliant and highly intellectual, great thinkers and philosophical minds. And it says Solomon's wisdom excelled all that because God's wisdom is much better than the wisdom of the world. God's wisdom can give us wisdom that years of education and study and philosophical thinking can't even compare to because it's a wisdom that comes from God and God who is the all-wise God can impart that wisdom. So Solomon's wisdom excelled that for he, verse 31, was wiser, it says, than all the men, than Ethan the Ezraite, and He-Man, he was a really strong guy, remember him? And Chalcol and Darda, the sons of Makol. Apparently these were people who were known to be wise in that day. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs. Now we have the book of Proverbs, many of which, the book of Proverbs, most of them that are recorded are written by Solomon. Some are written by a, a few other human authors. But even the book of Proverbs, we're given there not, not, only, not even one-third of what's described there, 3,000. And there are 31 chapters in Proverbs. If there are roughly you know, 30 verses, I mean, that's not, even a, that's not even a thousand right there. And they're not even all attributed just to Solomon. But yet it says here that he spoke 3,000 Proverbs. 
And you know what Proverbs are. Proverbs are these expressions of wisdom, these little pithy statements, these expressions of wisdom that are worded in a clever way so that they're easy to remember. I mean, you ever try and write a proverb? I mean, you ever try and write something? And, and it says 3,000 proverbs Solomon was able to speak forth. And it says also, and his songs were 1,000 and five. Now, a lot more of his proverbs got recorded. The only song we have of Solomon in record form is the Song of Solomon in our Bible. So uh, maybe his songs weren't too great. You know, only his one love songs. I don't want to made the, the charts in the Bible, the Song of Solomon. But again, a thousand songs he wrote as well. In verse 33, it says also that he spoke of trees. So he spoke a lot about understood things of biology. From the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. So we had great insight in regards to understanding biological things and how life functioned and photosynthesis and all these kind of things and how seeds develop and life springs forth. He also spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. So again, he was an expert in things like biology and botany and zoology, and ichthology, I mean, and orthonology, the things that are described here that we think, wow, that person, Solomon was so wise, he had incredible understanding in all these things because of the capacities that God gave to him. And verse 34 says, and men of all nations, notice, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So, Again, people from all surrounding areas, all nations, as they heard about the fame of Solomon, they came to hear him. Again, ultimately, remember the Queen of Sheba is one of the ones that comes to mind, we'll see, who travels from afar. And she comes because she hears of the grandiose wisdom of Solomon and how awesome his kingdom is. And then when she gets there and she sees it firsthand, she says, oh my goodness, not even the half of all of its greatness was even, when it was told to me, this is not even the half of it. And she was just astonished at the incredible vastness of the kingdom that Solomon was reigning over. But I love the description there. Men of all nations heard and came to hear from the king. Men of all nations. It makes me think of how this is exactly what the heart of the Lord is towards our king, the one greater than Solomon, Jesus that men of all nations would hear and would come and would seek out the king. That men of all nations, Jesus said that, that we're to make disciples of all nations, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And again, here, people from all different nations were hearing about the king, and so they were then coming to hear from the king and let him speak into their lives. Now, chapter 5, really through about chapter 9, give to us predominantly we'll see details about the temple the building of the temple its construction uh, it, it's being put together and then the dedication of the temple so we'll see some of these things when we get in a couple of the chapters ahead and maybe i'll try and get a a drawing or a diagram or two kind of help in some ways to put the pictures together maybe we could put it up on the screen to kind of visualize a lot of the details if you're somebody who's in the building and architecture they'll be your favorite chapters in the bible if not you'll probably feel sick that wednesday night <laughs> i know what that's going to be about i read all that i'm not into all the cubits 
I'm done, you know, catch that study later. But the architecture, if you're somebody who's into construction, is just beautiful, the amazing design of the temple. So chapter 5 begins now with some of this process towards building the temple. It says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the sole of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is neither adversity nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say, for you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians." So Solomon now begins to move towards the embracing of the calling that he knows God has put upon his life to build this temple for God, of which, remember, it was in the heart of David to do it, but God didn't allow David to do it and told David instead, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, but your son, who's going to reign after you, that's who I've called. That's who I've ordained to build this temple. Well, Solomon is now embracing that calling. And as he does that, the first thing he does we find here is he reaches out to one of the close friends of his father, a man named Hiram, recognizing that he's going to need some assistance in the process. Again, this shows his wisdom here that Solomon realized that he couldn't do this task on his own, that he was going to need some assistance and partnership and some individuals with certain skills and abilities that he didn't possess so he reaches out to Hiram it says there in verse 1 who's the king of Tyre now remember Tyre is basically directly north of where Israel is on the Mediterranean coast and it's directly north to where Israel at to Israel's border so he, he reaches out to his northern neighbor, Hiram, the king of Tyre. And the reason he reaches out to him, it says, is because Hiram had always loved David. So uh, apparently there was this close bond between Solomon's father, David, during the time of his reign, and Hiram, who was the king in the north. And there was more than just a, a, you know, a interaction or peace treaty. There was actually a bond. So he reaches out to one of his father's friends and he says, hey, my father has a good relationship There'll be favor there. So he capitalizes on a relationship that his father had built. And he sends a letter. We begin reading there from verse 2 down through verse 6. A letter to Hiram explaining what his intentions are and asking for Hiram's assistance. He says there in verse 3, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord had put his foes under the soles of his feet. Notice, he says, Hiram, you know about this. Again, indicating there was an awareness. He's telling Hiram, this is something you are aware of. So apparently, this experience David had when God said to him, David, you can't build me a house because, David, your experience as a military general, you've been a man of war. 
and your kingdom and your reign has involved great bloodshed and a lot of battles. And because you've been engaged in battles and you're fighting battles, you're not going to be the one to do this. I'm going to use Solomon, who's going to be a man of peace during a time of peace and prosperity to build my house. But here Solomon indicates that Hiram was already aware of this. And it's interesting to me that you notice that part of this time frame of when God built the temple was in some ways about a timing issue because it says that God spoke to David saying that he could not build the house of the Lord because of the wars and until that is indicates a time thing until the Lord had put his enemies under the soles of his feet but then verse 4 Solomon says but now the Lord has given me rest and peace on every side so what he's indicating is part of the building of the temple was a timing thing that under the time of David, it just wasn't not only just that it wasn't for David to do, it just wasn't God's timing yet until all the enemies were subdued and a time of peace and prosperity came. It wasn't the right time. And Solomon recognized that, that God said, David, you can't do this until this has been addressed and enemies have been subdued. But Solomon says, but now, now's the right time. And sometimes we need to remember that the work of God that he may want to do a lot of times can be directly dependent upon a timing thing. That there's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And this was a timing issue that part of it was not only who God was using, but it was a timing thing. He says, now is the time God's given me rest. So therefore, sensing the timing and the season was about to come to pass Verse 5, Solomon says to him, So therefore, I'm proposing to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as he spoke to my father David. Notice, even the wording there, verse 5, it indicates that Solomon understood something. He says, I'm proposing to build a house. And he specifically says, for the name of the Lord my God. Now, the name of a person always indicates their identity. If I say someone's name that you know, when you hear somebody's name, it's, it brings to your remembrance everything about that person, who they are, what you know about them, their temperament. Their, it speaks of their identity. And so when the Bible speaks of the name of the Lord thy God, it speaks of the identity and the representation of everything who God is. But Solomon doesn't say, I'm building a house for the Lord to dwell in. He's saying, I'm building a house for the name of the Lord my God. I think Solomon's clearly indicating he realized, look, you can't build a house that God's going to dwell in. The temple was going to be grand. God would manifest himself in the midst of the worship of the people. But Solomon understood God's not going to dwell in a structure. God's not going to be limited in his presence to a building, to a temple itself, because God is much grander than any building. In fact, let me read to you from Acts chapter 7 is uh, Stephen is recording and recounting the history of Israel. It tells us this in Acts chapter 7. It says, Acts 7 verse 46, regarding David's life, it says, Who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Then the Bible says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build 
for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? In other words, so important to recognize, though we may build a house, they were building a temple where the people would assemble for worship in the courtyard and the things of God and the ministry of God would happen. You're not going to regulate God and put God in a box in a house. Now, that's important because I'm not saying that we shouldn't come to the house, quote unquote, of the Lord when we assemble together for worship with awe and reverence and that we shouldn't expect to meet the Lord and to experience his presence. But the reason we meet the Lord and we experience his presence when we come into the house of the Lord isn't because God lives in the structure of the sanctuary. Because the reality is God's presence dwells with his people. It's not as if when we leave tonight, we shut off the lights and we leave God here in the dark. And he just sits here like this. Wait, oh, I wonder when they're... I hope they come back this Sunday. God's presence isn't limited to a building. The reason God's presence is in any structure is because God's presence is manifest among his people. And, and as we come to this place with the presence of God being a part of our lives, the Bible says when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. When two or three, Jesus said, gather in my name, there I am in the midst. And God's presence indwells his people in fact understand as we're looking at these things of the temple here and going forward in the new testament the bible clearly tells us that the temple of god isn't a structure but the bible says that the temple of god is actually first of all the church collectively that is believers first corinthians 3 says that the church is god's temple that we are the holy dwelling place where God by his spirit manifests his presence among his people, among the church. And as well, 1 Corinthians 6 also says that our bodies, if we're a Christian, are individual temples of the Holy Spirit. That God's presence now is manifest among his people, not a physical structure in and of itself so again as we look at these things and we look at the temple certainly there are lessons that can be gleaned symbolically to realize that today the temple is the church it's the people of god that god's presence by his spirit is manifest and dwelling among but i think solomon here he understood by his wisdom that this was something to honor the lord this structure it was a place to gather for worship but it wasn't a way of regulating God's presence to one place as if somehow God would be limited in that way. So he requests of, uh, it says here, Hiram in verse 6, that he would supply cedars, cutting down cedars from Lebanon, these incredible trees there, these cedars of Lebanon that are known for in the area of, you know, of that area of the north, that he would be sending down these cedars and he compliments him saying, look, hey, are you willing to get involved? He's offering a government contract here, and this is a nice government contract. I'll pay you wages for your servants, whatever you say. You set the price. I don't know if that sounds like a government contract or not, but <laughs> he says, you set the price, you supply cedars for us, and then he compliments him saying, for there is no one among us, verse 6, who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. They were known to have special skill in their craftsmanship in this area to cut down and assemble timber uh, from the cedar trees. Now, this shows something of Solomon's wisdom as well, is that he realized that there are certain people that had skills that he did not have. And this is wisdom here again. 
to enter into something and realize there are certain skills that we don't have that other people do. And to be able to recognize that and benefit from the skills of other people. It is the wise person who realizes that they can't do everything. And they don't have the skill set to do everything, but to be able to notice the skills in other people and to utilize those by making partnerships and connections and saying, hey, listen, this is a skill that I don't possess, but you possess that skill. And so can you help in this way? And can you bring those skills to the table? And so Solomon makes this request that cedars be supplied from the Sidonian people who have great skill to cut them down. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David, notice, a wise son over this great people. Now, verse 8 records the response in the letter that's sent back in correspondence to Solomon's request for this government contract. He says, I've considered the message, verse 8, which you sent to me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and the cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will float them in rafts by the sea to the place you indicate to me. Ultimately, we know that will be Joppa is where they're floated down to and then carried from there across land but again i mean these are are massive cedar trees that are there in lebanon are known to be sometimes upwards to a hundred foot tall i mean you're talking massive trees some you know eight to nine foot in diameter and they're cutting down these trees sending them on rafts down the mediterranean sea bringing them there to joppa the place that would be indicated and he says verse nine and then once they get there you will have them broken apart and then you can take them away and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. So he says, look, what we don't have up here in the area of Tyre is a land flowing with milk and honey. You have a very productive land there where they had occupied the territory of Israel, the Canaan land. And he says, look, you have great crops and a fertile land and we lack grain and sustenance and the things that you do. So we will cut down and supply you these cedars. And what we ask in return for that is our wages is that you send to us food and resources for those who are going to help in this way. So the, the contract is made. He embraces the government contract thankful for the opportunity verse 10 and Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire and Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores notice his compensation of wheat as food for his household now 20,000 cores is about a hundred thousand bushels so that's a lot of a lot of wheat being supplied there and 20 cores of pressed oil now that's about a hundred and ten thousand gallons of this pure pressed olive oil. And thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. That was his yearly compensation as they worked together on this project. The Bible tells us it took seven years to ultimately build the temple. Verse 12. So again, here's notice, no no coincidence. Verse 12, the Bible wants us to see this. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. The Lord gave Solomon continuously wisdom. He didn't just give him wisdom one time. Continuously, the Lord kept giving him needed wisdom. And it says, verse 12, And there was peace 
between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. Now, I have that circled in my Bible. The Lord gave wisdom, and there was peace. The Lord gave wisdom, and there was peace. And I'll tell you, sometimes one of the ways the wisdom of God is manifest is that it helps us to learn how to be peaceable with other individuals. Sometimes one of the greatest ways that God's wisdom operates when it's given to us is to help us to be able to negotiate relationships and how to dwell peaceably with people and how to be cooperative and work together and to understand the dynamics of different personalities. And as a result of God giving Solomon wisdom, it says that he dwelt in peace throughout this whole process with Hiram. Now, I think that would be necessary because the last I've never ever seen people work together in business or contract where there's not issues and problems and let's say over the course of a few years there was a few times when the raft was late getting there there were times when the logs came down and they weren't what was and so there would be issues and God gave Solomon wisdom to keep a good working relationship that was peaceable in his process working together with Hiram and you know what I'll tell you, uh, we have relationships and challenges, our jobs, our families, situations, and, and sometimes you know we're, we're trying to navigate those things. There is nothing better that you can do than to ask God for wisdom, for his wisdom to handle those relationships. In fact, listen to what James says regarding God's wisdom and how it helps us in our life in James chapter 3. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and everything evil thing are there. So the Bible says, when you find yourself in relationships in interactions with people and there's confusion and there's selfish ambition and self-seeking and striving to get your way rather than what might be best. And, and he says when those things exist and there's envy and animosity and hatred, he says that's, that's not the wisdom of God. That's, that's the devil manipulating the situation. That's people trying to use their earthly reasoning and wisdom. But then he says this, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above, from God, is first pure. That is, you have a pure heart. You, you don't have any ulterior motives. Your motives are pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Imagine that in a relationship. Willing to yield. The idea there is flexible, willing to yield to the other person, to defer and say, you know what? The wisest thing I could do right now is stop trying to have my own way. Would to God we use that wisdom more often. <laughs> the wisest, and the Lord's wisdom sometimes saying, just yield, just yield. I was just talking to someone recently and I said, you know, there's typically you know, two sides of things. Sometimes we don't fight for things that we should fight for. And sometimes the mistake we make as people is we're too passive. And there are certain things worth fighting for. There are certain things that are worth fighting for. And then there are certain things that it's not worth fighting about. And that's the time we have to be willing to yield. Or we, this is really not worth fighting about. 
It's really not worth making an issue of. We, we use the term choose your battles, right? That's kind of the idea there. God's wisdom makes us a peaceable person, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So again, Solomon here, I love the picture, utilizing God's wisdom keeping a peaceable working relationship with someone who at times there could have been friction and challenges certainly there was but it was God's wisdom that helped maintain a peaceable working relationship and certainly the same thing is needed in our lives in our relationships verse 19 says then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel and the labor force was 30,000 men so he drafts quite a labor force to do all this construction of the temple And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. And Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. So so he sets up this system, 10,000 a month. They're sent in shifts throughout a three-month rotation. And one month they're away up in the north in Lebanon working. And then for two months they come home and they're off. So again, kind of this balance here between work and rest and time together with family, you know, that they were away for a month. They weren't just working for a month. They literally were gone for an entire month up in the north, away from their families, fully occupied for a month. So when they came back, God says, okay, now Solomon gave them, you you take two months off, rest, spend time with your family, and, and the other two months, other shifts would go up and then their rotation would come back around. So basically four months out of the year they worked, The other eight months, in essence, they were off to to dedicate their time. Now, I I like that picture in some ways because that shows me right there, one month of work, two months of rest and family time. I almost think maybe God's trying to indicate a priority there, that we should be twice as interested in spending time with our families and making sure we give adequate attention to our families and our family life as we are feeling it's necessary to be working. And, And typically, we invert that. And listen, I am not by any means saying we should be lazy, we shouldn't work. The Bible is very clear that we're to be industrious, productive, responsible. Our problem is too often we get too caught up in the work and the labor thing and then we neglect the proper amount of time and investment we should be giving to our families. And here, one month they were away, two months they were back home. There was this beautiful system that was set up Adoniram was overseeing these 30,000 laborers. Verse 15, and Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens. So they were basically like grunt labor, you know, hauling the cement around kind of people, carrying the equipment, bearing burdens. 80,000 were occupied quarrying stone in the mountains. Just imagine, this is quite a labor force here. 80,000 quarrying stones, 70,000 just carrying things around, bearing the burdens in the construction process. Besides, verse 16, there was another 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. So there was over 3,000 basically, you know, sort of foremans, if you would, overseeing, you know, 150,000 to 180,000 laborers There's 3,000 supervisors kind of helping guide the work and keep everybody on task. Verse 17, And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple 
So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites, I don't know where they got on the job site. I don't know, they just showed up. The Gebelites, I don't know who they are. But they quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. So as chapter 5 closes, it begins to describe there that there's this process of preparation that's being made. Now in the next chapter, chapter 6, it'll give more insight in regards to how this process was happening as they were quarrying these massive stones that were fit and put together for the temple itself. But here we see them making preparations. Chapter 6 verse 1 is going to say, and then they began to build the house of the Lord. So notice, chapter 5 ends with the process of making preparation. Chapter 6 verse 1 opens with actual beginning to build the construction process. And there, of course, is a, a good reminder that there is a time of preparation which is necessary and essential. And then there's a time where after there's been preparation, there's a time to start, a time to begin. And sometimes we're wrong because we try and begin something before we've made necessary preparation. Sometimes we need to spend a little more time preparing before we jump into things and begin. And then other times, we can be guilty on the other side of that of spending a whole lot of time preparing and sometimes preparing and over-preparing and over-preparing and God says at some point, you got to begin. <laughs> you got to start. You got to step in. And sometimes, you know, an over-emphasis and over-infatuation on preparation is just a fear and an apprehension to step forward in obedience. And so here, they're making preparation, but verse 17 says it's to lay the foundation of the temple. To lay that foundation. Now, to close this evening, we'll just end there at the end of chapter 5. Turn with me quickly just to Ephesians 2. And let's just end here before we enter back into worship. And just to show you, again, sort of a New Testament connection as they were preparing for the temple, laying the foundation, getting the stones ready. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 regarding, again, this spiritual temple which you and I are now a part of, so we see some of the same pictures being symbolized in the Old Testament, New Testament truths. Ephesians 2, look down with me in verse 19. Ephesians 2, 19. says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members, notice, of the household of God, having been built on the foundation... This is how the foundation of God's house is built now, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So, God uses this metaphor of the household of God, the, the temple of the Lord where God comes and dwells by his spirit and it says that the foundation of God's temple, it says there in verse 20, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. It's a picture of the word of God. That is everything the prophets spoke of regarding the word of the Lord and the coming Messiah and the apostles who came and spoke forth the New Testament doctrine 
that was given regarding the person of Jesus Christ. So again, the foundation, the word of God, the chief cornerstone that everything is measured off of that's built, everything's measured off of Jesus. The chief cornerstone is the most important stone. So Jesus being the chief cornerstone, that's the foundation. And then you and I are the parts of the building. First Peter 2 says that we're like living stones all being fit together, built off of this foundation of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone in the word of God, that we're like living stones being all joined together. And as we're joined and fitted together, God's presence comes and manifests himself among us in our lives. And again, what, what an incredible thing to realize that, that God gives us the privilege to be a part of what he is doing, what he is building his work on this earth and that he's working in our lives. And again, we're going to see in the next chapter that they're chiseling and quarrying and preparing these stones. And so let me just say something. Perhaps this evening you feel like that you've sort of been under the hammer. And you feel like, man, I, Lord, I, just, I feel like, like kind of like you've been knocking some rough edges off of my life. Right, because you're a living stone. And they didn't just take a rough stone and just throw it into the building. Every stone underwent some preparation, some modification. It was chiseled and shaped so that it could perfectly fit into its place where it was supposed to. And you know what? God is wise. He's a master builder and he's working in our lives. He's shaping us. He's developing us. But that's all so that we can experience our part in his work so that his spirit can be at work among us working in and through our lives. Let's stand together. We'll pray.